Welcome to the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Brannon, and this is episode 26. since our last podcast. I think I counted today, it was 186 days since the last time we put one of these up. And it's been a lot, a long time, but we've also been doing some other stuff with content that's going to be launching in the next few weeks that we're excited about. But the main, the main focus today is on getting the podcast back up and running. And we're going to be talking about something that comes up in Almost every business situation that we deal with, we work with small companies to do strategic planning and forecasting and coaching and execution. And this area is the one that rightfully should get the most attention. It does and it should, and it's the area of cash. So this actual, the topic for today's podcast came out of uh, some planning we were doing for another podcast, and it was the top five questions that every business owner should know the answer to. We're going to do that in the next few weeks. But cash was the very at the very top of the list, and the question that kind of spawned this whole, the, the content that we're going to be talking about today, was the question of, or the, 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 the answer that the CEO should know, or the business owner should know, is how much cash do I have on hand today? Like, what is my daily cash balance? And and I've worked in companies where they were, you know, two hundred million dollar companies, and they knew that number every single day. And I've worked in companies that were, uh, you know, two million dollar companies, and they didn't. And I think the focus on cash, uh, you know, sometimes it gets a bad rap because people think, well, you know, it's not all about the money; it's about what we're trying to accomplish. And you know, I get my monthly financials, and as long as there's no cash constraints there, I'm happy. I think that's true. But today, I want to really talk about why I think cash is so important. And if you're struggling with with cash flow management or just not having enough cash on hand, some of the areas you may start to focus on to to remedy that. And the reason that I do not shy away from talking about cash, even with business owners who they they tell me, you know, it's not about the money. And and these these can be businesses that are hugely profitable, uh, but the business owners may have very altruistic motives or they may be philanthropic or they may be just very service oriented. And this also comes up a lot in nonprofits. We do some work with nonprofits. And this question that, you know, I raise the issue of cash and cash management and I'll get responses like, well, you know, it's money is not the most important thing to us. I get that. And that's absolutely I, I, I think that that is the way it should be. But one of the things that you have to understand about cash, even if you're not all about money, even if you don't want you know, the bottom line to drive everything you do, is that cash is the fuel that drives the mission of the organization. And it doesn't matter what your mission is. It doesn't matter if your mission is to deliver you know, spectacular service in your particular industry, if your mission is to change your industry, if your mission is to bring a new product to market, if your mission is to serve an underprivileged community and, and a nonprofit. Cash is what drives or what fuels that mission. And it fuels it from two perspectives. When cash runs out, there's two things that happen. Number one, the resources to accomplish the mission dry up. So it's very hard to impact the community, the market, the customer base that you want when you don't have the cash to go out and buy product, when you don't have the cash to make payroll. I mean, payables can only take you so far. Vendor credit is only going to last so long. And when I'm talking about cash, don't don't conf- we're going to get into this later, but don't confuse cash for profits. There's plenty like nonprofits. By definition, they're not they, you know they're not supposed to make a profit. I understand that's an incredibly nuanced term, and there are nonprofit CEOs that I've worked with that are listening to this that are you know they're rolling their eyes and going, oh my gosh, you just said that nonprofits aren't supposed to make a profit. We'll talk. Well, maybe we'll talk about that in another podcast. But for now. The thing about profits is that they are not the same as cash. So when you think about startups, uh, a lot of venture-backed startups or angel investor startups or bootstrap startups, a lot of times there are things happening to impact the mission of the organization long before they ever have any sales and way long before they have any profits, but there's still cash available 
to carry out the mission. And that cash can come from investors. It can come from the owners on pocket. It can come from debt where they borrow the money, maybe from friends and family, or they get an institution to lend them the money. So you have to have cash to carry out the mission because it provides, it's the resource that enables you to go out and do all the operational things that make the mission possible. And I, I, when I talk to owners about that, about, well, all of them get that. Okay. So all the owners that are, that are CEOs, executives, managers, whomever we're talking about that we're working with. And we start talking about well, cash is very, very important because it is the fuel that drives your mission from a resource standpoint. If you have cash, you have the resource to invest in all the things that make your mission possible. Check. They get it. They got that. And then we go on to this next part and there's two groups of people in this next one. One group gets it and one group doesn't. And it has everything to do with their prior experience. So that's a little bit of a tease, but here's, here's the, the uh, second way that cash fuels your mission. Cash, uh, the proper amount of cash uh, and, the, best, and the, the, the proper cash flow strategy fuels your mission by enabling you to focus on what's most important. It gives you the emotional fuel, not just the resource fuel, but it gives you the emotional fuel to pursue your mission. And I said that there's two groups of people when we talk about this and one group gets it and one group doesn't. The group that gets it is the group that hasn't had cash at some point in their life cycle. They have come up against a cash flow crunch. And not only have they not had the money to make payroll or they haven't had the money to go out and buy the next you know, invest in the next product, or they haven't had the money to expand a facility. They also understand and can remember the days and exactly what it felt like to be just emotionally drained by the constant juggling to try to keep enough money in the accounts to cover the bills, to try to placate vendors, uh, you know, the constant phone calls from vendors so that they were behind on or the, uh, the, the, the uh, cold sweats when payroll day came around and they didn't have the money for payroll. And if you talk to, we've, we've worked with some of these businesses in the past, and I have definitely had periods in my history where I've been up against a cash flow crunch. And you just, you don't have the emotional energy to pursue your mission because you're in survival mode. And it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, if you, cash, you know, sufficient cash is kind of at that bottom tier in the area of what we're talking about. And mission is at the very top of the pyramid. So if you don't have the cash, forget about it. You're not even going to get out of the gate to be able to have the emotional capacity and the emotional energy and the focus to pursue mission if this area of cash is running dry or it's, it's a constant struggle, uh, you know, juggling, the, keeping the plate spinning, juggling the balls, whatever analogy you want to use. So cash is absolutely vital to an organization being able to do what it wants to do, what it loves to do, what it feels called to do. And there are a few primary, what I'll call primary sources of cash and secondary sources of cash. And the reason I call them primary and secondary isn't because that's the order you should tackle them in. It's the exact opposite. We're going to get into this later in the podcast. But primary in terms of ultimately, this is where the majority of your cash should come from. Right? And the secondary stuff is, is you should not be planning on these things for long-term cash management, but you definitely have to address them in any cash strategy that you want to employ. So the, the primary, the number one primary source of cash is profits. Now, I said profits. I didn't say sales. What's the difference between profits and sales? Well, I can go out and I can sell a ton on credit, meaning I tell my customers, just place your order and then you can pay us in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or a year or whatever. And we can get the sale, which allows us to book the revenue and we've got expenses. And maybe we've even been able to go to our vendors and say, give us the product and we'll pay you when our customer pays us. So we've kind of financed the operation on payables and maybe payroll isn't quite due yet. So you know, we, we don't have to pay our people. Uh, it's, it's unlikely that if we told a customer that they can wait a year, our employees are going to do the same. But for illustration purposes, you can see how it's possible for us to sell something, collect no cash from our customer, buy the product we're going to sell, and not have to pay anything to our vendor, and in the short term, be able to push off some of the other daily operating costs like payroll and rent and those kind of things that haven't come due yet. And the financial statement from an for, from an income statement perspective may show a, a, a 
may show sales, but it doesn't show a cash profit. So when we talk about profits, I'm talking about cash basis profits. And I don't want to get into a digression about cash basis versus accrual basis financial statements, but I do want to make the point that cash comes from profits, not from sales. And you see lots of companies that fail to even understand what their break-even point is, meaning what is the dollar volume of sales they have to have before they start making a profit. So there's a huge distinction between revenue and profits, and the primary source of cash should be profits. So that's that's all I want to say about that. Another primary source of cash can be equity financing, meaning people invest in your company, stockholders, give you money, you give them back stock certificates. And in most small, closely held businesses, this money comes from the founders of the company. So they put in the initial capital. They may invest some other resources as maybe a business expansion comes along and they decide they're going to take money out of their personal pocket and put it into the business to fund an expansion or fund fund, uh, acquisition of a new building or maybe a new payroll position comes up and they're and they want an extra cushion so they put more money in the in the business and that's basically equity financing. And then a third primary source is debt financing. So this happens when hopefully it's planned debt. So it's things like uh, we want to buy a new building and we're going to get the bank to finance a piece of it. Um, operating lines of credit are another place where businesses typically get cash in exchange for payable back to the bank. So those three primary sources, profits, equity, and debt, are typically what businesses will count on from a day-to-day basis, an ongoing basis. Those three things are always in the forefront. Profits first, because we we would love to derive most of our operating cash flow from profits. In the long term, that's really the only place to derive operating cash flow. In the short term, the next preference would be equity and then possibly debt. Now, I'm structuring these as profits, equity, and debt, not from a cost-to-capital standpoint. So those of you who remember your finance classes, you remember cost-to-capital, debt is always cheaper to acquire than equity. I get that. But for our purposes, almost all the situations I'm talking about are closely held businesses. Like our client base is that typical 2 to $20 million closely held family-run business. And in those cases, I'd much rather them take the money out of out of the family than go to the bank. And that's part of that is a personal preference of mine. We're going to get into this a little bit later. I'm, I'm debt averse. I do not like debt. Uh, I think the healthiest companies out there don't have any debt. And this is not just my philosophizing. This is what I see in real life. Uh, this, these are the business owners that I know that I respect the most. They're some of my mentors and I, I do get that in some industries it's near impossible not to have debt, but given the choice, I would much rather own a business with no debt than a business in an industry that is highly leveraged and has to have debt to operate. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Let's get into secondary sources of cash. So some of the secondary sources, and and one of the ways you might think of these is like short-term fixes or areas, problem areas that need to be addressed, right? So none of these long-term are going to provide significant operating cash for the business. But if they're not being addressed at all, they can be kind of leaks in the bucket from a cash standpoint. So the first one is accounts receivable. Managing your accounts receivable is huge, and we're going to talk about this more later. Also, managing your accounts payable. So accounts receivable is just making sure that when people, when you sell to people and they owe you money back, they actually pay it, and they pay it in some kind of routine fashion. It's not all over the map. Like if you say your invoices are due within 30 days, by and large, people pay you within 30 days. And the people who don't, you have a plan to address that so that you can recover that money. Accounts payable is the same way. You have terms with your vendors and you pay your bills according to those terms. And it's consistent. It doesn't fluctuate. If you have a practice of paying a particular vendor who's Uh, you know, net 30 days, you pay that vendor on or around that 30th day. You don't pay them, you know, right on upon receipt one time and the 30th day the next. You basically have an accounts payable strategy that sets up terms for each vendor that are negotiated between the two of you, and that's how you pay your bills. So managing accounts receivable, 
managing accounts payable are two secondary sources of cash. But they're only good for a one-time hit. Like if you if you don't have your act together and accounts receivable, well, getting your act together with accounts receivable is going to immediately add some cash. Typically, it's going to usually add some cash to the bank balance immediately, like within the first 30 or 45 days or so that you you get your act together. The same thing with accounts payable. Improving your accounts payable practice is going to be good for a short-term bump in your cash flow. And then things will stabilize and, and you're not going to get any more out of that out of that effort. You just need to maintain it. These other two are, are these other four or so are very short-term strategies, meaning these are things that you do, you pretty much do once uh, to get your act together. And then there's not really even a lot of maintenance that goes on after that because they're pretty much transactional. And the first one is selling assets. We're going to talk about this later, but there's four, there's four basic asset types that you can sell. You can sell inventory, and that would typically be like obsolete inventory or stuff you're having a hard time moving. You could sell fixed assets, so equipment, vehicles, uh, furnishings, fixtures, that kind of stuff that you're not using or that's in the way. You can sell that, and that's good for a short-term hit to cash. You can actually sell accounts receivable. This is not something that I recommend, but you can factor your accounts receivable. And um, there are some industries where this happens quite a bit. We don't work in a lot of them. Typically, I think it's a bad idea. I'd much rather build a cash flow management policy that allowed me to keep my receivables because I'll get more from them. And then intellectual property. So you can you can sell or you could license some kind of intellectual property rights you have. And sometimes that's a good alternative to franchising is just to go ahead and outright sell the rights to use something. And you don't have to build the entire business operation around franchising and go through all the legal requirements to franchise a business. Um, intellectual property. And, that, and this is the one of the four that typically can be an ongoing strategy as long as you don't give up your own right to use the intellectual property. So it's not an exclusive sale. You still retain the right to use some of it. So selling inventory, selling fixed assets, selling accounts receivable, selling intellectual property, those are all secondary sources of cash. So what I want to talk to my clients about and what I want to talk to you about today is having some kind of cash flow strategy or multiple cash flow strategies. And the idea is that you're going to work on your cash flow just like you would any other area of operations. If cash really is kind of the lifeblood of the business and it's that thing that enables you to carry out your mission, doesn't it deserve just as much attention as your new customer onboarding process or your hiring process or your inventory stocking process or your shipping process? All of the the day-to-day processes that go in your operations manual this is just this is just as if not more important than those things. So why wouldn't you give it your attention? And so when we talk about the strategies that we're going to get into that to today, I really want you to be listening for things that you can implement in your business. And I'm going to go through these strategies in the order that I think you should pursue them. And I'll try to I don't know if we're going to put this in show notes or not. I'll I may do show notes, I may not, but um if you're taking notes or, or if you go back through this and listen again, I want you to think about these strategies in the order that we're going to go through them because the goal is really for you to have not just the physical resources available to carry out your mission, but also the mental energy and the ability to focus so that you can go after your mission with all the passion, all the enthusiasm, all the excitement that you want to. And I don't want cash to stand in your way from this. Now, a little bit before we get into cash flow strategy. So if w- the first thing that you hear when you run into a business that's having trouble with cash, that's struggling with it, is they have this misconception. I would say 99% of them have this misconception that they're going to improve their cash position by just selling more. Right? And I really want you to get out of that mindset. One of the things that you've often probably heard about processes is that making a bad process more efficient just enables you to make your mistakes faster, right? So if you've got a really screwed up process and you just try to make that process more efficient rather than more effective, all you're going to do is make your mistakes with more efficiency, right? And that's not what we're after. And the exact same thing can happen in this area of cash flow. 
if you think if let's say you're at a million dollars worth of sales right now and you're struggling with cash flow you you know it's touch and go with payroll days you have to watch what bills you pay on the check run each week to make sure that payroll's going to clear you're inconsistent with your vendors sometimes you're paying them on their terms sometimes you're trying to stretch the terms out you don't have a good accounts receivable process all this all the things that we're going to talk about and you're at a million dollars worth of sales and you say you know I, if i could just get to a million and a half Everything would be fine. Trust me, your problems are going to increase by 50% if your sales increase by 50%. The fact that you don't have these cash flow strategies in place is only going to make things worse as the level of activity in your business increases. So we want to address these strategies, again, the same way we would any other process in the business. So step one, I think the very first strategy you should pursue is to have a goal for your cash balance and your reserves. How You should have some kind of finish line, some kind of line in the sand, a benchmark, where you know this is the level of cash that I want. This is what I'm trying to accomplish here. And so I'm going to give you a few things that we have seen work for clients, and this is kind of some of the generally accepted um, advice or counsel or rules of thumb that you'll hear in a lot of businesses. And the one that I think is probably most realistic and most appropriate is to have two to three months of your overhead expenses on hand. And I say overhead expenses because these are separate and distinct from things like cost of goods sold. I don't want you to have two to three months of your, your inventory purchasing cost in reserve. I want you to have two to three months of things like your rent, your fixed payroll, your, your office and occupancy expense outside of rent, um, maintenance charges, benefits, that kind of stuff. If you can have two to three months of that on hand at any one point in time, you're going to alleviate most of the stress behind trying to keep a sufficient cash balance on hand. And we've seen, we see this work in a lot of the businesses that we work with. Now, my preference is really to avoid debt entirely from a from a short-term perspective, like lines of credit. Because a lot of businesses will say, well, it's easier for me to go out and get a line of credit for $200,000 than it is for me to increase my operating or, or my cash balance from $150,000 to $350,000, which is what you're asking me to do. So, so they go, well, it's, gonna, it's sitting at around $100,000. I need $300,000. Why don't I just go get an operating line of credit? for $200,000 to make up the difference. And you can do that. A lot of, you know, in some industries, you could argue that that's exactly what you're going to have to do. And they they tend to be capital-intensive industries, industries that require a lot of fixed assets. And the purchase or the acquisition, the maintenance of those fixed assets kind of trumps a lot of the other activity that goes on in the business from a debt perspective or paying down debt perspective. And it's just kind of taken for granted that our best use of cash is paying long-term debt. And if we have to have some short-term credit to overcome those, those payroll cycles or cash collection cycles, we're going to go to the bank and get that. It really depends on your industry. I do think there are some industries, like I said, those capital intensive industries where it's going to be hard for you to get two to three months worth of cash. But, but I will tell you, that the healthiest companies in any business have a minimum of three months in cash. And if you do a Google search, do me a favor, do a Google search and just say, you know, how, what should the cash reserves be in a small business or family small business cash reserves and see what the literature says. And you're going to find that a lot of the stuff out there actually says three to six months worth of cash. And I, I personally think that's a little bit excessive. I don't, I can't think of a single situation where we've had a customer that wasn't already there go from one to two months worth of cash up to six months worth of cash. And that's a lot of cash for most small businesses. I think that once you get above like $20 million, that starts to become even more feasible. But I'm going to give you some examples that show you that the range of differences basically by industry for cash reserve balances. So probably the company that gets trotted out most often for any kind of case study is Apple. Apple is kind of the darling of the last decade and a half. And all the things they've done around product development, what they've done in supply chain management in terms of being able to scale up new product manufacturing and distribution is phenomenal. We've never seen it before on the scale that Apple's doing it. And so they get trotted out and 
very charismatic leadership and Steve Jobs and somewhat less so, but but somewhat enigmatic, charismatic in, in uh, Tim Cook. Apple gets a lot of press, not just for their products, but for the actual company's operating performance. So right now, well, not right now, in the last quarter, and I pulled their last quarterly report. It might be September, but I'm not quite sure of the date. But Apple had $22 billion in operating expenses on a on an annual basis. For the last 12 months, they had $22 billion in operating expenses. Not their cost of goods sold, not, not all the costs related to the iPhones and the laptops and the, the uh, iPhones, iPads that they sold, but just their operating expenses, $22 billion. They had $21 billion in cash. So Apple has almost 12 months worth of cash on hand. So they could shut down their manufacturing operation and just to pay for all the engineers and all the product developers and all the programmers and all the people at Apple headquarters that aren't tied to uh, cost of goods sold, they could pay those folks for a year, keep the lights on for a year, and they'd be fine. So Apple is in a very enviable cash position. They actually have you know, a lot more resources than that at their disposal in terms of short-term investments that they could liquidate and turn into cash on a, on a pretty, um, you know, fairly easily. So Apple is at one end of the spectrum with 12 months worth of cash on hand. Then you look at another company that's very well known. Everybody knows who they are. Everybody has one in their town just about, and it's Walmart. So Walmart, they, they didn't report, their last quarter report didn't report 12 months worth of data. It reported six months. And for the six months ended in that report, they had $47 billion dollars in operating expenses, which comes out to about $8 billion a month. And they had $5.7 billion in cash on hand. Now, Walmart has less than 30 days worth of cash on hand, which was kind of surprising to me. I was like, you got to be kidding me. They're $8 billion a month in operating expenses, and they've only got $5.7 billion in cash on hand. But if you look at Walmart's operation, a huge, they're, they're one of those businesses that's hugely capital intensive. Right? They have tons of stores, real estate, not just operating leases, but real estate that they own, fixtures that they own, IT assets that they own, way, way, way more than Apple does. So in terms of the capital makeup of their business, they've sunk a lot more into their fixed costs. And you could interpret this a number of ways, but the, there's a fundamental difference between those two industries. One, very capital intensive. One, very intensive in intellectual property. The intellectual property business, much like many service businesses, is going to have more leeway in terms of greater margins and less cash need. You know, one of the reasons that Walmart doesn't have as much cash because they're using a ton of it to operate these facilities. So, the the takeaway there is that I'm going to tell you two to three months worth of cash, but you do need to look at your industry and look at how realistic that is. Some of you should have more cash. Some of you ha- should have, or, or for some of you, it's going to be very difficult to get to that level. But three a three to six month target is great if you can get it. But under $20 million, I think that's going to be very hard for most businesses. So have a goal. Figure out what it is you want to have in your cash balance. What's the target that you're striving for? Because if you don't have a target, you know, you've heard this, if, you're not, if you don't aim for anything, you're going to hit it every time. We at least want to have something that we're shooting for. We need to have a benchmark so that we can tell whether we're making progress or not. So that's step one. Get a goal for your cash balance and your reserves. The second step is to tighten up on your accounts receivable process. And I have a very kind of specific approach to this that I ripped off from a group called C12. C12 group, you know, c12group.com and learn more about the organization. Great group. I've been involved with it for about seven years or so. And in one of our business segments where we talk about, we meet every month and we talk about ways that we can improve our businesses. In one of the business segments, we talked about accounts receivable process. And it changed forever the way I look at accounts receivable. And you can get we can get way beyond just the impact this will have on your cash position. We can also talk about uh, I think the greater benefit for here is how it helps you build relationships with your customers. But for today, we're just going to get into the the business side of why it's important to have a tightened up accounts receivable process from a cash perspective. 
The thing that's interesting about C12's process is that we tend to make cash collections a very impersonal process, and the C12 approach is to make it as personal as humanly possible. And if you think about the way most, how do most companies manage accounts receivable? Well, a lot of a lot of small businesses don't manage it at all. Meaning, customers go past their due date. There's no phone call. There's no outreach. There's no contact. You know, 31 days passes and nothing goes goes on. There's there's no effort to reach out to the customer to find out what may or may not be happening. But we may go 60 days, and we start to get aggravated about it. And then we go 90 days, and we finally decide we're going to do something. And what do we do? We send a letter or we send an email. And it doesn't. we don't get a response after 90 days. And so we turn it over to one of these soft collection companies that basically writes a letter for us and makes it sound like we're about to sue their pants off. And then if they, find, if they don't pay there, then we turn it over to the real debt collection folks, who start to get nasty and make threats and make phone calls and all that stuff. And that's that's the way a lot of small businesses manage their accounts receivable. And if you ask me, they're not managing it at all, but that's the best that they have, and that's what they're doing. The C12 approach that I like so much says that as soon as that debt isn't paid when it was promised to be paid, whatever your terms are with the customers, so let's say that your terms are net 30 days, on the 31st day, the customer gets a phone call, not an email, not a nasty letter, a personal phone call from somebody in your office that says, we're going through your accounts receivable, we have you down for this amount being due today, and we haven't received it yet. Is, has the, is there any reason you weren't satisfied with our service? Is there anything we need to do to, to satisfy you? And... Usually the customer is going to say, oh, no, 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 there's, there's nothing that, you know, it's, it's in the mail or uh, we must have overlooked it. We'll get that taken care of today. And if that's the case, all we have to say is, oh, well, we really, really appreciate that. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a note down here that that's on its way. Do you know about when we should expect to receive it? So again, we're, we're asking for a commitment. So if they, ha- if they say it's in the mail, we'll say, well, maybe it should be here in about three days. If they say, oh, we haven't paid that yet. It must have been an oversight. Uh, we'll get right on it. I, the person who is calling would ask, well, when, sh- when should we expect that? Do you think it would be four days, five days, a week? What do you think we're looking at? And we get a date, and then we just say, that's great. We really appreciate it, and, um, you know, we appreciate your business. And that that's it. We hang up the phone and then we write a nice thank you note that says, we appreciate your business. Uh, thanks for your time today. We noted your commitment to get this to us in seven days on such and such date. Thanks again. Sincerely, so-and-so, whoever the person was, right? So it's some kind of process like that. So the basic idea is that we reach out to the customer. We make sure that they understand that we are watching this stuff closely we really value the relationship, and we find out what's happening with our payment. This is something that they've agreed to pay. They haven't done it yet. We just want to know what's happening. We secure some kind of uh, commitment from them about when we should expect this money to come back, and then that's it. We write a thank you note. They get the thank you note. They understand that we appreciate them. They also understand that we have our act together with our accounts receivable. Now, In a situation where if they say, well, there was something wrong with that order or the invoice wasn't what we expected, there's a totally different direction that this goes because it really is as much about customer service, if not more about customer service, than just collecting our money. So let's say the person on the other end of the line says, um, well, you know, that invoice was really more than we expected and -and so-and-so has to review it and I'm just, I'm not sure it's on his desk, but I'm not sure he's reviewed it or I think she wants to call you and talk about it. And so the next thing that that comes out of our mouth is, I'm so glad that you let me know about that. I do not want you to pay that invoice. So just please, you know, if if you find out that they're looking at it today, before, if if they're just going to pay it out of frustration or they're going to, you know, they just say, well, just go ahead and pay it. I don't want you to pay that. Uh, I'm going to let my boss know that there's an issue and I'm going to have him reach out to you or I'm going to have her you know, follow up with your CEO or your manager or whomever and um, just assure me that you're not going to pay that invoice 
until this is resolved. Right? So we're communicating that it is about the service way more than it is about the money. But the same thing happens when the call is terminated. We follow up with a short note of thanks for their time, an assurance that we are following up on our end, and we do not want them to pay it until the matter is resolved. Right? So that's the first contact. So let's say that a week goes by, we still haven't received the payment. What happens? We call again. And we say, uh, I just wanted to follow up because you, you, you know, when we talked last week, you said that you thought we would receive it by such and such time, and we haven't received it yet. And it's basically a repeat of the exact same thing that happened before. Now, there, is, there can be one twist. You may add into the script something like, and this is you know, just up to your company to decide what you think is appropriate, but we've had some good success with adding something to the script that's basically along the lines of, um, that's great. I appreciate that you know you say it's going to take you another week. That kind of stuff happens to us all the time too. It's it's um, we get it, uh, but I just need to make you aware that if these kind of long outstanding receivables go on, we have to get approval from our CFO or you know whoever's in charge of our finance side uh, to continue delivering service. Do you think that you might need to make those kinds of arrangements? And this puts them on notice that there's a fundamental shift happening in the relationship where we might have to withhold service if they can't meet their obligations. And most of the time, and I've listened into these calls, most of the time uh, this, this really gets attention and they go, no, 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 we don't, we're not going to need any special treatment from the CFO. We're not going to need the accountant to look at our, our uh put us on COD or anything like that. We're going to get this taken care of. It's just one of those things that took a little bit longer than I thought when it's going to be there. All right. Same thing. Hang up the phone. Thank you note. So what are we accomplishing here? And this can go on for as long as you deem it necessary to go on. The interesting thing is for companies that will actually do this, it rarely needs even a third phone call unless it's a phone call to say, thank you. We got the, the stuff that you promised. After that first call, companies start to get trained that we expect our receivables to be paid on the schedule that everybody agreed to. And when that doesn't happen, there's a consequence, even if, even if the consequence is the receipt of a phone call. So the thing for this to really work well, it needs to be personal and it needs to be predictable, meaning it has to be terribly consistent. The customer knows, you know, a customer who's received one of these calls once knows that on the 31st day another invoice goes unpaid, they're going to receive another call. And it happens like clockwork. Now, because it needs to be consistent and predictable, it needs to be on somebody's to-do list to keep track of the exact day when these things are due and to make the calls when the money doesn't come in. And I prefer that it not be the owner of the business because owners have a terrible habit of putting other stuff on their priority list besides this. So it's on their to-do list. They know it's something they have to do, but they get into meetings or they get busy or this, that, or the other thing, and it, it just doesn't happen. So I really prefer that you make this the responsibility of somebody else in the organization. You give them a very detailed script, and I'm going to share with you how to get that a little bit later. Uh, but you, you get a, a very um, a detailed script that tells them exactly what to say and exactly when to say it and all that stuff, and you just turn it over to them, and it becomes a matter of course in your business. It becomes just the way that you go about doing things. And if you do that, it's going to improve your accounts receivable process. Now, it's like I said, if you've got some really long past due receivables or you've got people who are typically used to paying you on the 45th or the 55th or the 65th day, and you can shorten that up to the 30th day, you're going to get an immediate improvement in cash flow. Like your cash balance is actually going to go up, right? But it's only going to go up once because... Getting shoving those long overdue receivables into a smaller cycle has a one time kind of benefit. But here's the thing that allows you to do on a on an ongoing basis. It allows you to 
looking at your sales, predict exactly when the money, when the cash is going to show up from your sales. And that is invaluable when it comes to growing your business. When you're growing your business, you're typically going to experience the worst cash flow shortages of your life. They're going to, ha- they're going to happen at the worst time when you need the money the most to continue growth. And if you don't have a good receivables process in place, like we said earlier, going from a million to a million five is only going to hurt you because it's it's not you're not going to be able to predict when that extra half a million dollars is going to hit the the cash account. So getting this squared away not only results in a one-time bump to cash, but it results in a predictable cash cycle that you can use in the future. So the third, so number one, just to recash, you need to have a goal for your cash balance. And I typically would base that goal on two to three months worth of operating expenses. Number two is to tighten up your accounts receivable process. Number three is to declutter, right? So we talked about some of the secondary sources where you can sell off assets. You can sell inventory, um, fixed assets, that kind of stuff. That's what we're talking about here. So the number one thing to do in this area is inventory. If your business keeps inventory, you almost certainly have obsolete inventory and you need to get rid of it. Now, for companies that have large uh, warehouse operations, um, where they have like dedicated warehouse space. When we work with business on business process mapping and business process flow, we get into some of the warehouse processes. Almost always we wind up reconfiguring some part of the warehouse for greater efficiency. And if we're going to do that, we always set up a particular piece of the warehouse, a designated amount of shelf space in one location for all the obsolete inventory. And the first time we stock it, it's it's overwhelming for the business owner to walk out there and see how much inventory. So what's your definition of obsolescence? Well, it really depends on your inventory turnover, like how many times you typically turn over inventory in a year. So if your sales are a million dollars and you have an average inventory balance of 200,000, it means that you're turning your inventory over. I'm sorry, not revenue. If your cost of goods is a million dollars, and your average average inventory balance is two hundred thousand. It means that you're turning your inventory over about five times a year. So, not quite every two months. A little bit longer than every two months. So, if that's the situation we're dealing with, I would go ask the warehouse manager. Show me all the stuff. Give me a list of all the product codes that haven't sold in the last two and a half months. So it's not even that we, so because most stuff we have sold out and restocked in two and a half months. I want you to show me all the stuff that we haven't even sold one item in two and a half months. And that's where we start. Now, sometimes those items are very high dollar value and, and they don't sell that often. They might be major replacement parts for customers or they might be um, special orders that get placed once a year on the customer's purchasing cycle. And we had a bigger run than expected last year, but we know it's going to get used the next year. So there can be definite uh, exceptions to this rule. But by and large, anything that hasn't sold, hasn't sold a single item within the average inventory turnover period, we want to segregate and put into one spot as obsolete inventory. And what we're after is just being able to identify what it looks like. Like, how much stuff are we talking about? And I only do that for one reason. It's to get the owner emotionally invested enough to actually make the next decision. When they see how much physical space is being occupied by obsolete inventory, it's gut-wrenching. Because they're paying the square footage for rent and utilities, and they're also giving up shelf space. Like what's amazing to me is we go into these places and we're talking about operational efficiencies in the warehouse. We're restructuring physical warehouse space because they're at capacity. So they think, so they're going, you know, we're going to have to build a new warehouse unless we do something about the old one. And we don't have the money to build a new one yet. So what are we going to do? We can't grow anymore. So we go, well, let's Let's look at how could we, if we were coming into this space for the very first time, how would we set it up? And they go, oh, it would be completely different than the way it's set up now. So if it's a big enough decision, we're talking about building a new building, let's at least go ahead and make the most of the space that we have now. So let's go start talking about how we can physically rearrange things. So this is the background for what I'm telling you about segregating all this obsolete inventory. So 
They decide they're going to restructure the warehouse. They bring in some people over a couple weekends to, to move all this, the rack space and stuff around. And we get all the obsolete inventory in one place. And they look at it, and they're like, you've got to be kidding me. And, w- and what they realize is if we got rid of all this stuff, our problem would be solved because we'd have exactly as much shelf space as we need to stock the product. Like we wouldn't need to build a bigger facility. So there's a couple of payoffs in this. Number one, it, it was, there's, there's three that I can think of right off my head. Number one is the warehouse runs a lot more effectively. The fact that they, they don't have all this inventory in their way that's not doing anything for the business automatically makes them more efficient. Number two, it solves a capacity problem. They're actually able to put the resources that they already have to better use and do more business with what they already have. And number three, the last, and actually probably the smallest benefit, is the one that we're talking about today, which liquidating that stuff and getting rid of it has an immediate impact on their cash balance. You can turn all that stuff that's actually costing you money into cash. And that's probably, like I said, the the smallest benefit, but it's a very real one from the cash strategy that we're talking about now. And when you talk about parting with this stuff, again, I said earlier, one of the things that I'm after is to get this emotional reaction out of them to seeing all of this shelf space being occupied. And why do I want an emotional reaction? Because I need them to make the decision to get rid of this stuff and to get, and I don't care what the price is that they get rid of it at. And it's funny because I, I, the profit on CNBC or MSNBC, I don't remember which one, is a great show. Um, Marcus Lemonis, who, who is an entrepreneur and started Camping World, and uh, he goes into these businesses and he turns them around. And I remember an episode where he went in to a car dealership and he was looking at buying into this car dealership and he was going to take their concept nationwide. And uh, the, the guy who owned the car dealership had this habit of buying these really expensive cars and then putting them on the lot, like high-end Mercedes and Land Rovers and crazy cars that didn't at all look like any of the other inventory. Like all the other inventory was Fords and Chevys, and he'd have a $60,000 Mercedes sitting out front. And Lemonis, the, the entrepreneur, the, you know, the profit guy, he comes in and he's like, we're selling this stuff. And I don't remember what it was. Maybe the guy had paid like $35,000 for this BMW that was sitting out in front of the dealership and had a sticker, you know, had a a price on it. Maybe he had $35,000 into it and he was going to sell it for $50,000. And it was, it represented this $15,000 profit for him. And Lemonis said, we're selling it today for something crazy. Like we're selling it today for $20,000. And the guy's like, you can't do that. We're going to lose money on that deal. And that's the same thing I hear from these business owners looking at their obsolete inventory. I'm like, let's just sell the whole lot for $10,000. And they're like, we're going to lose an incredible amount of money on that deal. And you cannot think that way. You have to look at this as sunk cost. You've already lost the money, not just the difference between what you paid for it and what you might get out of it. You have lost exactly what you've paid for it. And you're going to keep losing more for as long as you keep it. You have to get out of that product, sell it. I don't care what the cost is. The benefits are going to be there just by getting rid of it, period, getting it out of your way, getting the extra capacity. Whatever cash we get on top of that is just pure gravy. So get rid of it. It's obsolete. You're not going to sell it anyway. So if you can find a buyer, just, just you know, take your medicine, learn the lesson, and move on. I see more businesses hang on to obsolete inventory. We come back a year later, and it's still sitting there. And they finally make the decision to go ahead and sell it. And I do the numbers on the back of the napkin. Sometimes I don't share it with them because I don't want them to be completely depressed. But I've seen situations where we've sunk another ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars into a relatively small amount of inventory just by holding on to it for a year longer than we could have. We you know we should have sold that we should have given it away the year before and we could have saved fifteen thousand dollars. So when it comes to decluttering and get, getting rid of inventory, consider it sunk cost. There are no profits. There are no losses. It's money that's already been spent and lost. Whatever you get out of it today for salvage value is just going to bump your cash balance up a little bit, but it's going to pay huge dividends in the form of better operational efficiency. 
Next area that I want to talk about, I'm going to move through these, these, the remainder of these pretty quickly because they're not nearly as tough as the others. But I would say any cash strategy that you implement needs to have a debt paydown plan. Now, that's a little bit counterintuitive because we're talking about keeping more cash. And here I'm telling you to use cash to pay down debt. But here's the reason I think that any cash strategy has to have a, bet, a debt paydown plan. Debt service is really the enemy of building cash reserves from profits. If you have to take a piece of your profits and service debt, that is money that you cannot use toward generating cash reserves. And once you start to get your act together from a cash standpoint, you also start to get your act together from an operational standpoint, which means profits increase and you get even more opportunities to put cash aside. There's an interesting momentum thing that happens that can be almost completely counterintuitive, but getting rid of cash or getting rid of debt early, even when it means spending cash, can often result in building more cash more quickly down the road. And anybody who's a Dave Ramsey fan knows about this debt snowball thing that he published. Now, he's not the guy who came up. Larry Burkett was talking about debt snowballs long before Dave Ramsey made it popular, but most people know about it from Dave Ramsey today. And anybody who's experienced this personally, and I have, from both a business standpoint and a personal standpoint, understands what's happening. It's a behavioral change that you're after. It's not the math. The math doesn't matter a hill of beans. What you're trying to get is a behavioral change. And the behavioral change is the financial discipline to pay off your debt as quickly as possible. Because once you do that, you become disciplined in a lot of other areas of your spending. And when the debt's gone and you don't have that debt service anymore, you have a much larger chunk of your profits left over to decide what to do with. And I'm advocating that you put those toward cash reserves. So I chunk debt up into three categories. So short-term debt would be things like lines of credit, even uh, American Express cards and stuff like that that you're not paying off every month. If you've used that kind of stuff in the past to get through a cash flow crunch and it's been termed out or they put you on a payment plan, that's the kind of short-term stuff that I'm talking about. You need to get rid of that as quickly as possible and replace the need for that kind of debt with your own cash reserves. It's the most expensive debt out there. You don't need it. You should have the cash reserves to cover that stuff if you're going to run a healthy business. So pay off the short-term stuff as quickly as possible. The midterm stuff, this would be things like uh, vehicles that are financed. It could be uh, previous lines of credit that went evergreen that got put on like 60-month terms, that kind of stuff. You need to pay it off as, as well too, but it's kind of second in priority to more of that consumer or operating line stuff that really should be funded out of your own cash reserves. And then the long-term stuff, I, I am okay with, depending on your industry, as long as you do it smart. I'm typically not a huge fan of capital leases, but if they're struck because, and the reason I'm not a huge fan of capital leases is because they, they typically fit into that five to seven year term period. And I think you can get, you can do better by purchasing more for cash and lowering your interest expense on those. That's again, a topic for a whole nother podcast, but the long-term stuff that I think falls into this category is are things like building purchases, um, major equipment financing, uh, things like that, things that are 10, 15, 20-year terms. Uh, and as long as you do it smart, like I'm okay with you trading your office lease expense for a mortgage on your own building. I'm okay with that, but just do it smart. Don't go, if it means taking a, a prime plus 4% rate, don't do it. Uh, and I think your cash flow strategy has to take into account the debt and, and those three specific categories of debt, the short-term consumer-type operating line of credit stuff that you should replace with your own cash reserves, the mid-term stuff that you should just try to find a way to pay off early, and the long-term stuff that you have to just get smart about. Now, I'm going to talk about one other area of debt that doesn't that it gets it actually gets way more talk than it should when it comes to managing cash flow and this is the debt that's financed by your vendors this is your accounts payable and there's and there's one thing you're not going to hear me say 
anywhere in this podcast. It's not something that you hear me say with clients. It's not a position that I advocate, but it is the go-to strategy for increasing cash flow for most consultants, most business advisors, most experts. And it is stretch your vendors out. So take your 30-day vendors to 60 days, take your 60-day vendors to 90 days, and you take that extra 30 days of cash and you put it in your own pocket. I do not believe you should do that. Number one, I don't believe it's a great way to honor the people who are putting their faith and trust in you by stretching them out. Uh, again, the markets that I work in are that, that 2 to $20 million small, closely held business. Their uh, vendors look a lot like they do. They're small, closely held companies, and you stretching them out creates an inordinate amount of stress on them, and it puts them in a position where they need the advice of this podcast because their cash flow stinks. And I think you're just, by solving your problem, you're creating a problem for somebody else. I don't think that's a smart way to do business. So I am not a big fan of stretching out your accounts payable. But I do think that accounts payable should factor into your cash flow strategy. But I think it should should factor in from the standpoint of getting current with your accounts payable. Most people who are uh, off base, you know, or who are struggling with cash uh, cash flow and cash management. They are behind with their AP vendors. That's damaging their relationships with their vendors. It's definitely creating hiccups in operations as they try to take phone calls from these folks who need to get paid so they can pay their employees. It's creating delays in service delivery or product delivery because these small vendors who aren't getting paid are reticent to, to, get, to keep doing business with you, wondering when they're going to get paid. They're less enthusiastic, which means they're not really adding any value to the relationship. There's probably things these vendors could be doing for you, areas they could be helping you with your own business, but they're not even entertaining anything that would make them go out of their way because you're not paying them. So number one, you're just missing out from the relationship standpoint and just the good, basic, your grandma's common sense, grandpa's common sense, how to do business when your accounts payable vendors are stretched out. So Get them current. And then the next thing you need to do, I am in favor of you going to those accounts payable relationships and saying, can we get some kind of discount? Like, I know you're a small business. I know you give us 30-day terms. Would you be willing to give us a 2% discount if we paid within 10 days of receiving your invoice or within 10 days of the invoice date? Or would you be okay with us... Uh, using our American Express, I, I can't believe I'm saying this because I am not an American Express fan, but I do have clients who do this. Would you be okay with us paying our bill with American Express so we can get the points or paying it with a cashback rewards card? And I think now if they offer, you know, they, they take credit cards and that kind of stuff, you don't have to ask permission, just do it. But a lot of them don't. I do think that you should ask because, in essence, they are taking a 3%, 2.5%, discount for whatever their merchant credit card clearing fee is. Right? The other thing that you can do is you can go to them and say, will you give us a 2% or a 3% discount uh, if we pay you by ACH instead of credit card because it doesn't cost them near as much to take a, an electronic check as it does to take a credit card. So. Step one is to get current with those vendors. Step two is to go to them and try to figure out what's the win-win situation. Look, you get your money a little bit faster, which I know is important to you as a small business, and I get a discount, which helps my profitability, which is important to me as a small business. And if you get, if you're current with them, those strategies actually do improve cash flow and you're in a position to implement them because you're not taking advantage of anybody. Now, there's four more. And we've been going something like 58 minutes. So we're coming up on an hour. And uh, I just want to mention these four. And then we're going to be on to the, uh, to the end here. So the first of the last four is dividends. A lot of business owners make it a habit of, ma- of paying salary out of dividends, meaning they're paying themselves, you know, 500 bucks a week on a W-2 paycheck, but they're taking out 1,500 bucks a week to, you know, out of the business for groceries and mortgage payments and that kind of stuff. Not a big fan of that. Pay yourself market, market salary. If for no other reason, it's what IRS says you should do, you know, so you, you know, stay square with uncle Sam, pay yourself a market rate salary for whatever services you perform in your business 
And that's what you should base your lifestyle off of. Like, so if your market rate is less than you can afford to live on, then it means, guess what? You're living beyond your means and you shouldn't be doing that. The, the other thing that I would say is on, in the area of dividends, once you're paying yourself a market rate, your dividends that you pay out, you, you should be taking dividends out of the business if it's profitable and you don't need all the cash in the business. But base your dividends on the profits of the business, not on the amount of money you need to take out to make your own bills. So one of the things that we often advocate in anybody that wants a performance comp plan is a third of the profits go back to the performance comp plan. A third of the profits go back into the business to invest in things like equipment or building cash reserves or paying off debt. And a third of the profits go to the owners in the form of dividends. Now that's a third, a third, a third formula works very, very well in service businesses. Most of the time when we work with those, um, other, you know, depends on your industry. If you're manufacturing third, a third, a third may not be necessary. It might be 20% to the profit sharing plan, um, 50% back into the business and 30% out to the owners because those manufacturing businesses need more cash. They're investing in equipment more often. So it just depends on your industry, but come up with a plan, an actual strategy for paying out dividends that's based on a percentage of the profits of the company or alternatively the excess cash over the target you need. So if you determine that you want, let's say that you start off and you want two to three months worth of cash in the business. Well, then you could limit the amount of dividends you take out to say 20% of the profits and the other 80% of the profits stay in the business. Maybe they go to some kind of performance comp plan. They go to paying down debt. They go to, to building cash reserves. And then the day finally comes when you reach four months of cash reserves, right? From that point forward, if four months is all you really need to keep in the business, from that point forward, your dividend could be based on whatever excess cash is in the account over four months of operating expenses at the end of each quarter. So at the end of each quarter, we look at it and we go, hey, look, we've got five and a half months worth of operating expenses in cash. We don't need that much. All we need is four months. So we take the difference between the four months that we have or, or four months that we need and the five and a half months that we have, and that's the amount that we pay out in dividends. But you need a strategy for paying out dividends that's somehow, some way disconnected from your need for the dividends. If you if you need more money than, the, than you should be taking out of the business based on its profitability, you need to adjust your lifestyle. That's... Again, another topic for another podcast. We're creating more topics in this podcast than we're addressing. Uh, third, or the third strategy from the bottom is to budget your overhead expenses, especially payroll. So when it comes to hiring new people, you need to have a budget for that. And the budget typically is going to be based on revenue. So you say, well, we're not going to hire another person until we grow revenue $100,000. Or we're not going to hire another person until... We get, you know, until revenue is at 2.3 million or, you know, whatever it is. But you don't, you have a trigger for determining when you're going to hire the, new, the next new person. And it's based on you having the financial resources available to hire them. And you look at all your other overhead expenses, things like rent, things like um, property taxes, utilities, office supplies, all that stuff. And you actually spend what you plan to spend. You don't go over budget. You're measuring you know, the actual spending versus the budgeting, budget of spending every month, and you keep things in check that way. So budgeting overhead expenses. Again, one of the, it's, that's like one of the strategies that people talk about first, but if you haven't done these other things, like you don't have a goal, you don't have a tight AR process, you've got obsolete stuff laying around, you don't have any plan for your debt, you're paying out dividends based on whatever you think you need to, to uh, buy groceries for the week, by the time you get to budgeting overhead expenses, you know that is not going to move the needle. Budget budgeting overhead expenses on my list is one, two, three, four, five. It's number six on the list, so it's the sixth most important strategy from my point of view. But it is one that once you've done those first five, I think budgeting overhead expenses has some value. Next to last, so number seven on the list, is cost of goods and pricing. So what can you do to improve your gross profit margin? There's usually two areas you focus on. They're really the only two areas you can focus on, and that is reducing the cost you pay for materials or labor. So if, there's, if you can get it from another vendor for cheaper, maybe you should look at that. For a lot of retail businesses, one of the significant 
pieces of their cost of sales is their credit card clearing. And so you've seen a lot of uh, retail merchants look at alternatives to traditional merchant clearing accounts to try to cut an extra 2%, 2.5% out of their cost of goods sold. That can be significant. In a $1 million business, 2.5% is $25,000 that goes to the bottom line. So looking at ways you can reduce your variable costs tied to whatever product you're, or service you're delivering, and then pricing is a huge one. When we look at businesses that don't pay consistent attention to pricing, it's not uncommon for them to have not had a price increase in two to three years, and that's killing your profitability, especially in the area you know, with how the economy is doing now. We're not in the recession anymore. A lot of areas are recovering, especially here in southwest Florida. It's like we never had one in some industries. So if you haven't adjusted your prices in a while, that's another area that you should build into your cash improvement strategy. And then the very last area is in this new markets, um, new products or sales growth. So what I said, most businesses go to first, oh, we're just going to improve sales from a million to a million and a half. Or if we go from 3 million to 3.6 million in sales, all our problems will be solved. That strategy is actually the very last one on the list of things that I recommend. I think that you have to you have to do all this other stuff first and then that enables you to have the mental energy and focus because growing the top line of the business takes a lot of effort the stuff that we've talked about so far is basic process improvement it's basic internal efficiency planning discipline these are things that are well within the bounds of your control when you start talking about we're going to grow into new markets or we're going to develop new products or we're going to you're just going to through brute strength and hiring new salespeople grow sales That requires an incredible amount of concerted effort by your entire leadership team. And to be able to do that, not only do you need the cash resources to invest in those salespeople, to invest in the marketing, to invest in the product development, you're also going to need the mental energy and focus. And if you're strapped for cash, that's the last thing you have in your your, uh, quiver of tools to go out and attack and conquer the business world that you're in. So I hope that this stuff has really been helpful to you. I really enjoy getting back into this podcast. Uh, you know, it's been, like I said, it's been six months since we, since we did the last one. And uh, I'm really looking forward to doing these every week going forward. Now I did mention, this is something we're going to do for every podcast to try to, to get people involved and actually get them doing the changes. So I mentioned the accounts receivable process, and I talked about how you can tighten up your accounts receivable process by using this really simple script, and it's a script that I got uh, and I, I built what we're using now off this C12 model of making accounts receivable very, very personal. So if you want a copy of that script, just go to our show notes. It's axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 026. That's where you'll find the show notes. And you'll find an area there where you can give us your email address and we will send you the exact script that we use, the exact script that we recommend clients use, and the script that we see get results and help people not just get the receivables in line, but also build really, really good relationships with their customers. So if you want that, if you'd like that giveaway, um, just go to the show notes. Again, axiomstrategic.com slash podcast podcast slash zero two six give us your email address and we'll get that right out to you i'm joey brannon this is the axiom podcast and we'll see you next week